Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, right in the middle of the Old Testament. Maybe a book you haven't spent a lot of time in lately. We're going to be looking first at chapter 6, very famous passage of Scripture, and then toward the end of our study we'll go over to chapter 19. Last week, you remember, we studied about the demoniac and about how the power of God was able to completely and fundamentally change his life in every way. And then toward the end of our study last week, we talked about how that applies to us, how God's power works in our lives, and how um, it needs to be in place to offset the tendency toward sin and the tendency toward selfishness, which can get very out of control and can corrupt the way that we think and act and talk and behave. And you remember the turning point of the study last week was the time when the demoniac saw Jesus. As Jesus got out of the boat, the disciples are still reeling from the storm they had been through. And it says in the text that the demoniac saw Jesus. But I want you to remember that he didn't just look at him. A lot of people look at Jesus. A lot of people stare at him and say, well, he's interesting, but they never do anything about it. The demoniac ran toward him and fell on his face and worshipped him and declared him as the true God. And that was the moment when his life changed. That was the moment when he became different, not just in terms of being delivered from legions of demons, and not just in terms of having his physical and emotional appearance altered, because you remember he was naked and bleeding and cutting himself, and, and by the time the news got back and the people came out of the village, he's sitting there in his right mind, and he's all uh, clothed, and everything looks normal. So not only was that changed, but even more so, his understanding of who the Lord was was changed. His understanding of the power of God was changed. God's power had always been there. Jesus had been ministering around that area for a long time. But it was only when the man went into the presence of the Lord that he was able to experience God's power. God's power is available to any person on the face of the earth this morning. It's available to change and transform their life for all eternity. But it is only when we go into his presence that we experience the power. You can watch it from a distance. You can sit as a believer and say, I wish God's power would be in my life. I wish he'd help me through this trial. I wish he'd help me through this disease. I wish he'd help my marriage. But if you never go toward him, nothing's going to change. You have to go into his presence. And that, I believe, is what we need to be studying over the next month or two. We haven't done a series. We're in our, what, 11th or 12th week as a church. I think God's leading us now toward a study that I'm calling the presence and the power. We're going to talk about the different accounts in Scripture where there's a connection between the presence of God being manifest in people's lives and the power that came out of it, how it impacts our lives as children. Because God is not just some distant being, right? We know that as believers. God's not just in heaven doing his own thing and we're down here on earth doing our own thing and, and there's no connection between the two. That's why there was an incarnation. That's why Christ came to us. So never view as a believer God as being distant and out there and lofty. He is lofty, but, but by that I mean arrogant and disassociated. He's personally acquainted with us. He knows our griefs. He's been through our trials. He put his Holy Spirit, his own presence within us so that we would have that power. And we, I think, need to gain a greater understanding, even many of you being mature believers, a greater understanding 
of exactly what God wants to do in and through our lives. Now, before we can talk about how we're supposed to respond to the presence of God, we have to have a true perspective on who he really is. Let me do a little experiment this morning. All right, I want you to, to think now and get a, <coughs> excuse me, a metal picture in your mind when I say the next sentence. When I say to you, the God of the Old Testament, don't respond, but think, what, what image, what characteristics, what picture comes into your mind? The God of the Old Testament. Now, when I say the God of the New Testament, or when I say the words Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, what images, what characteristics, what traits come into your mind? What are the characteristics and mental pictures you got? And how, if at all, are they substantially different between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, or Jesus and the Holy Spirit? See, I believe that our God of the Old Testament, we tend to think of him as the lawmaker and the judge. How many, some of those words kind of roll in your mind? Good, a lot of you. The lawmaker and the judge who's, who's more punitive and more harsh and who deals with people and nations and, and there's a lot of smiting. Don't you love the word smite? Good King James word. A lot of smiting and a lot of problems and people rebellious and kings. and It's just everything we think about Father, the God of the Old Testament, is, is kind of that lawmaker and that judge. Even though in the Old Testament, God abundantly pours out his grace and he forgives and he guides and he helps and he shows mercy. Then we get to the New Testament and we think about Jesus. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me seeing as I go. We love the name of Jesus. Jesus is a beautiful name. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. We talk about the Holy Spirit who gives power and infuses us and fills us and gives us strength and guides and leads us. And we have, as we think about Jesus, especially thoughts of love and mercy and salvation and kind of this softer picture of, of God in a lot of ways. How many thought of Jesus and the God of the New Testament like that? You thought of love and mercy and Jesus walking and touching and healing people and holding the children. That's not a picture we usually have of the Old Testament God. And yet, it's the same God. The Lord our God is one God. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He isn't different in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament. And we have to be careful not to become one-sided in our reality, one-sided in our view of who God is, to the point maybe that we say, well, God's not really going to hold everybody accountable. God, God doesn't, it does, come on, this is 2011. A loving God wouldn't send people to hell. And our culture says that if, that, that if we believe that way, then Christ can't be who he is. If, if we believe that God really is going to hold people accountable for sin and that Christ came, his first message was repent. Christ came to call people to repentance. Christ came to save people. He didn't just come to love people and say, it's all okay, do whatever you want. That's, that's now the modern view of Christ, right? Even Christianity is going in that direction. Modern theology has become very pluralistic and PC. And it says, well, Jesus was just about love and acceptance 
and tolerance and, and just do whatever you want and God will just, it'll be fine when you get to heaven. God really won't hold you accountable. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not even Jesus. Jesus came and his forerunner, John the Baptist, said, repent. And Jesus came and said, repent. Jesus said, I've come not to coddle you. I'm paraphrasing here. Come not to coddle you. I've come to call you to repentance. Turn from your sins. I'm the only way, the only truth, the only life. Nobody's coming to the Father except through me. Nobody comes to the Father unless you accept my salvation. But our culture says that, that the God that would hold us to that standard, even Jesus, that's not acceptable. That's not comfortable. And increasingly, modern theology is kind of going off the rails, even in, in the area of theology, even in the area of, of those gray areas we talked about a couple weeks ago. That we have to come back again and again to the Word of God. This is God's full revelation. This is God saying to us, I want you to know a complete picture of who I am. And I want you to develop a complete theology of who I am. Because how many of us know our theology can't be just partial? We can't just say, well, I like this part about Jesus, but I don't like this part. I like this part about God, but I don't like this part. Our theology has to be complete and full. So what do we have to do? We have to understand who God really is. And Isaiah 6 is the starting point for that. God is Lord and Savior. So in any study of the presence of God, we have to look at the complete picture. What does the word presence mean? In both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word presence means face. So when we come into the presence of God, we come before the face of God. The presence of God is when people come close to Him and we experience Him. And when we look at the Old Testament accounts of how people felt and what people uh, experience as they went into the presence of God, there's one word that stands out. It's the word fear. When people in the presence of God, they felt fear. That's what Isaiah felt here in Isaiah chapter 6. Look at it starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, loft with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. Hold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now it's no coincidence when you look at verse 1 that the Holy Spirit gives a very definitive timetable for when this happens. In the year of King Uzziah's death. Remember us studying King Uzziah? How many remember that? January 2nd, start of the year. 
We study King Uzziah from 2 Chronicles 26. If you remember his story, he was the king that started well. He had favor of blessed him. God used him in powerful ways. He built a strong army. He fortified. He built uh, cisterns in the desert. Everything was great. But at some point, Uzziah stopped doing what? Tell me. Come on, tell me louder. He stopped praying. He stopped calling on the Lord. He stopped seeking the Lord. And at that point, God took his hand off of him. God took his hand off of his ministry. Though God had blessed him, Uzziah forgot him. And his reign was the defining point in Jewish history. David had been on the throne. God had blessed him. He was wonderful. But then Solomon became apostate. He wandered from the Lord. He stopped. Listen, Lord, he had a thousand women around him and he was worshiping false gods. And then his child, Nehoboam, broke the nation apart with Jeroboam and Israel became two nations, Israel and Judah. From there, it just went downhill. And you got to Isaiah, Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 and it seems like maybe we'll get back to where we need to be. But Uzziah messed up. And Uzziah stopped seeking the Lord. And Uzziah stopped following the Lord. And at that point, it all fell apart. And Israel really has never been the same since. Because as Uzziah wandered from the Lord, the people wandered from the Lord, became resistant. They had always wanted a human leader. Oh, God, give us a king. God said, I'm going to be your king. This is a theocracy. They said, that's great, but we want Saul. And they kept craving kings, and they kept having kings that were corrupt, and the nation developed this void. And by the time you get to the end of Uzziah's reign and his death, this is Isaiah 6. God says, where there's emptiness, I'm going to fill it. Uzziah's, the year of his death was the first year of Isaiah's prominent ministry. And God says, listen now, I'm going to give a fresh word. I'm going to give a fresh challenge to the people of Israel. I'm going to give a fresh calling to this nation. You need to come back and get right with me. You need to come back and get right with me. And if you don't, here's the warning. I will take my hand off you. I will scatter you. You will never be the same. You will get what you reap. You will sow that. But if you turn back to me, I will respond with my presence and my power and I will pour blessing out on you. That's the definitive line. If you turn away from me, I'll turn away from you. If you turn toward me, I will turn toward you. Now to help Isaiah and to set the tone for that message, look at the text now. To, so Isaiah will get the right perspective. God says, all right, I'm going to give you a unique vision of heaven. And somehow we don't know whether God brings Isaiah to heaven or whether the heavens open in some kind of supernatural insight. And Isaiah is able to look into heaven. Somehow he is in the literal presence of God in heaven. And God is being praised. He's sitting on his throne. The angels are flying around him. And the temple, it says the temple, that's describing heaven, the temple of heaven is filled with smoke. Seraphim are flying around and they're saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
holy, holy, holy. Just repeating that over and over again about how God is great and holy. That is a very unique passage. It's the only time in the Old Testament where we see a description of God. In Genesis 3, it says that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day and he called out to Adam and Eve. But I look back at the text, there's no evidence that they actually physically saw him. When Moses is on Sinai, we'll study that passage in a few weeks, when Moses is on Sinai and God gives him the Ten Commandments and God's presence passes by Moses, he covers Moses' eyes with his hand because he says, if you see me, you'll die. And by the time he passes by, it says, Moses saw God's back. But there's no evidence in the Old Testament other than this passage, even including the tabernacle. When the God came into the tabernacle, his presence filled the Holy of Holies with smoke. His spirit was there, but the people didn't actually see his face. So here we have the presence of God, the face of God, but nobody's seeing him. Here in Isaiah 6, it says Isaiah sees the Lord. Now you say, well, Jesus said in John that no man's ever seen the Father. We have to conclude that Isaiah at this point is either seeing Jesus, that's what John concludes in his gospel, that Isaiah saw Jesus, or that the power and, and the manifest glory of God the Father is so great that all Isaiah, Isaiah sees is his robe. You see that in the passage. I saw the train of his robe filling the temple. So he's either seeing the person of Jesus Christ, who is God. This is the complexity of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, but they're all one God. He's either seeing Jesus, which is what John concludes, or he's seeing the Father, but he's not seeing the Father's face. Don't get distracted by it, because God's one. And that's not the, the point here. The point is, look at verse 3, that he's saying the Lord God is holy and awesome and indescribable. He gets this special revelation, this special vision. He sees the presence of God. And three times the seraphim are flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. Three is the number in Scripture of perfection and completion. It's also three persons. God, three in one. The Lord is perfect in His perfection. He's unquestionably holy. Holy means to be set apart and separate, and it means to be morally pure. In other words, the Lord God is not only completely righteous and completely holy, and there's no evidence of impurity in Him, but He is set apart from all other gods as the one true God who is completely holy and in control of all things. He's the only God. There's no comparison. There's no competition. There's nobody else that can say, well, what about me? Satan tried and God banned from heaven because Satan was arrogant and God said, you don't possibly stand up to me. He's the one true God. Isaiah hears the words that he's the king, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts means the one who exists and rules over all creation. Now, what kind of respect does this God deserve? Look at verse 4. It says that when God speaks, the very foundation of heaven shakes. The foundation, the rafters and the floor of heaven, if we can speak metaphorically that way, they tremble before 
His voice. Now you would think that heaven would be designed to handle God's presence. You would think that God would have built heaven that when He spoke, the room would stay still. But this is the power. Listen now, this is very important for our study over the next months. This is the power of God's presence. That when God speaks, things tremble. That even heaven, which He designed, His temple, His place of residence, His holy place, that when God speaks forth, everything shakes. Can you imagine how awesome that is? It's like a mini earthquake in heaven every time God speaks His voice. I don't know what view we have of heaven, and we'll study heaven at one point. But I think all of us kind of wonder, what's it going to be like, and will my dog be there, and do I get to play golf, and streets of gold, and what will I do with all eternity, and will I get bored? Listen, get all that junk out of your mind. When we're in the presence of God, when He speaks, heaven will rumble. Can you imagine that? We need to develop a higher view of the Lord. We need to develop a higher view of who God really is. How could we ever treat Him casually again? When we read that verse, how could we ever think of God lightly and be flippant in prayer? All right, God. I've heard people pray in such a way that I just kind of was dumbfounded. Good morning, God. Like, hey, bud, what's up? This is the Lord God Almighty, who the angels fly around saying, holy, 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 who when he speaks, heaven trembles, who is over all kings and all nations. May we, as we prayer, never come flippantly again. When he speaks, the ground shakes. This is not some small God that we just take for granted who we callously sin against, who we talk to Him like He owes us. God, come on, this is what I want. Follow my direction. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Just His robe, just His clothing fills the temple with glory. He is powerful and holy and mighty and the King of all. Whether you know Him this morning and love Him or you don't know Him and don't care, do not read this passage and dismiss it as a past vision that doesn't have any relevance for your life today. If anyone in the world at the time of this writing had the resume, so to speak, to be able to be there, it was Isaiah. Uzziah had failed. The people were resistant and rebellious. The nations around them were corrupt and godless. If anybody had the right to be there and be even the remotest bit disaffected by this vision, it was Isaiah. And yet I want you to notice Isaiah's reaction and response to this special vision. Look back at verse 5 again. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's get the literal meaning of each word and, and rephrase it, okay? The word woe is a passionate cry of grief and despair. He's not just saying, oh, I'm in trouble. 
He's saying, ah! That's literally the meaning of the word. He's grieving. He's in despair. He's overwhelmed by his own inadequacy. And then he says, because of this, I'm ruined. The word means to be cut off and destroyed. He knows he has no hope. He has no right to be in the presence of God. He says, I live among people of unclean lips. The word means to dwell. It means that you take up residence. And he says, I'm un unclean. The word means impure. So, so what's he saying here? Isaiah is saying, I'm tormented with grief. I'm torn apart, listen now, by the despair of the reality that I cannot stay here in the middle of this holiness. Because I am impure and I live and abide with people that are unrighteous. So even the sight of the living God, let alone to be in His presence, is too uncomfortable to comprehend or to handle. And I have to leave. Notice he's not saying here, well, I just don't like this. This is a little hard for me. I better get out of here. He's saying, I can't be here. I have no choice. I don't belong here. I am in the presence of absolute holiness, and I don't belong. You ever prayed that way? The Bible says in Hebrews that when we pray, we go before the throne of grace. That's the same throne that Isaiah is seeing in Isaiah 6. When we pray, listen, now I'm saying this to myself. When we pray, do we go in and say, I'm so unworthy? Or do we say, all right, God, here's a list. Thank you for being God. I know I'm being flippant, but go with me. Thank you for being God, and thank you for loving me, and for salvation, and for Christ. And Lord, I'm so grateful, but okay, now let's get down to it, because i got some stuff to talk about. Or do we truly go into his presence and just abide and say, Lord, you are so holy. How could I ever imagine that I could come to the throne of grace boldly, that I could come to the throne of grace as your child. I'm nothing. If you've never prayed that way, I encourage you this week, just pray that way. Wednesday night, prayer meeting, we'll take some time. We'll just go into the presence of the Lord. We're not even going to deal with the request for a while. We're just going to go and get our hearts right. That's what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying, I'm so overwhelmed. You know, being in God's presence should do three things. I want to encourage you to write these down. Let's think through this now. Let's interact with the text. Being in God's presence should do three things. First of all, it should make us aware of our own impurity. Anytime you go into the presence of God, and because the Holy Spirit resides in you, you're essentially always in the presence of God. Anytime you go in the presence of God, you should be aware, and I should be aware, of our own impurity. When we get into the presence of holiness, there are only two possible reactions, and only one is reasonable. Either we defiantly deny our sin and justify our character and list all our good works 
and refuse any accountability. Or we say, woe is me, I'm ruined because I'm impure. We can try to escape from God's presence like Jonah does when God calls him to go to Nineveh and Jonah thinks, well, I'll run and I'll hide and I'll get on a boat and I'll go out in the middle of the Mediterranean and God won't be able to find me. But God always knows where we are. Or we can stand up and admit our failure and confess our sins. And what do we know happens when we confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So we can hide and deny and say, well, God, you don't really care and I'm not really accountable and and it doesn't really matter. Or we can stand up and say, yes, you're right. I'm completely impure. I'm completely unworthy and I'm going to confess who I am because I know your grace will deliver me from it. When we enter the holiness of God, it should make us aware of our impurity. Second, it should humble us because we're so unworthy. I believe this one's very easy to dismiss because we're so used to the grace of God. Listen now, it's important. We're so used to how patient and kind and loving and quick to forgive he is that sometimes, often, we don't understand exactly what's taking place when God forgives us. You know that when you pray, it says in 1 John 1, that that I confess, God forgives. So, So we get a little bit casual, don't we, about confession. God, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, kind of have a, a false humility. I'm really sorry, but I know you'll forgive me. And then we turn around, and an hour later, what do we do? We do the exact same thing. Going into the presence of God should humble us because we are so unworthy. This is why God gives us trials. Because he wants to remind us how fragile and not in control we are and how much we need to trust him Notice here that Isaiah is not only conscious of his sin, but he's filled with sorrow and dread that his sin has consequences. I love the part of his statement. And you and I need to pray with this mindset when we pray that we're people of unclean lips and we're surrounded by unclean people. This is the core of who we are and it's the core of the world we live in. We are not worthy of God's love and mercy and exoneration, the only thing we're worthy of is death and separation and hell. But thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. You and I this morning, the only thing we deserve is hell. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve love. God does that because he's loving and gracious and merciful. But we haven't earned it. Nothing I'm going to do this week will cause God to say, there it is, that's all I needed to justify you. He says, the only reason you have hope is because of Christ. We're not worthy. Third, God's presence should fill us with fear. Because of who he is and because of who we are, that alone should humble us and break us of any pride, any self-confidence. We should be overwhelmed with awe and respect and submission to him. Fear means to be in awe. It means to be afraid. It means to have full reverence for. This is a very visceral, realistic fear 
based on his presence. In fact, there are several times in Scripture where just an angel of the Lord appears and the person fears they're going to die. Manoah in the Old Testament, Zacharias in Luke 1 when he's in the temple, the shepherds who are watching their fields and suddenly the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone around about them and they were what? They were fearful. They thought they were going to die. We have the Christmas card picture of they were scared out of their minds because they were just in the presence of an angel of the Lord, let alone the Lord himself. The Bible calls us to perspective. It says, fear the Lord. Write down some passages and look at them later. Deuteronomy 10.12. The Lord your God requires that you fear the Lord your God and walk in his ways and love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua 24, 14. Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away other gods. 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Psalm 34, 9. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him there is no want. Great verse. Psalm 34 is a great passage. Psalm 115.11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Proverbs 3.7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. And then Malachi 3.16, that gives us a glimpse of future judgment in eternity. It says, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Ultimately, that is going to be the distinguishing mark of those who are covered by God's mercy for all eternity, whether or not we feared him. Everything's captured in it. Confession of sin, trust in the work of Christ, asking God to cleanse us and save us, uh, walking by faith, being filled with his spirit, serving him. It, it is all capsulized in whether we recognize and admit our impurity and recognize and yield to his holiness. Everything falls under that. And there are no other options for our trust. I want you to turn to one more passage and then we're going to finish. Turn over a couple pages to Isaiah 19. I saw this passage earlier this week. And as I read it, it just jumped off the page to me. Especially in light of all that we have seen in the news over the past week or two from Cairo and Alexandria and Suez. We've witnessed the political turmoil and unrest and the hostility in Egypt. And that not only has huge implications for now in the Middle East, but it has prophetic overtones. The Lord is not just ignoring Egypt. I don't know why Egypt's been on my mind so much the last few weeks. I know stuff's going on there. I, maybe it's the guy who's downloading our messages. I, there's something about Egypt right now. And as I was reading through Isaiah, I, I found this passage, and it was like the Lord just said, deal with that. Because here in chapter 19, God details his plans for Egypt, and he talks about his power and his authority. Look at verse 1. The oracle concerning Egypt. 
Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptian against Egyptian and they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them and I'll confound their strategy so that they'll resort to idols and ghosts of the dead, medium and spiritists. Moreover, I'll deliver the Egyptians into the hands of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Stop there for a minute. Look at the overriding message in verse 1. The idols of Egypt will tremble at God's presence. In other words, every false god is powerless before him and submits to him. All the things that man puts his confidence in, all the things that we trust and serve as a replacement for the true God will someday fall away and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That includes the idols of Egypt. Now you say, why do I care? This is what, three, four, five thousand years ago. Why do I care about this prophecy about a nation that's 6,000 miles away. Well, when we read verse 2, look at it. It's, it's hard not to see the headlines of the past week, is it? Egyptian against Egyptian, brother against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city. The Lord knows all of this. It's not out of his control. In fact, in verse 2, he says, I'm willing to incite this so that everybody will know I'm God. The oracle that Isaiah gets in chapter 19 has never been fulfilled in human history, but we may even be watching it being fulfilled right now before our eyes. And that should grab our attention because no nation has been so mixed up and intertwined with the history of Israel as Egypt has. It was the first nation in which the Jews were taken captive but the Lord brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery and delivered them. And he keeps saying throughout scripture to the Jews, remember Egypt, remember how I delivered you, remember how I brought you out. Pharaoh and the nation in Exodus stand as a metaphor for worldliness and self-centeredness and stubbornness and pride and the hardness of heart. And God's rescue of the people from Egypt is a clear picture of salvation and deliverance. Then we know Egypt in the New Testament because after Jesus is born and Herod threatens his life, what are Mary and Joseph told to do? They're told to go to Egypt. And that stands as a metaphor for the purpose of the incarnation. That God goes from the promised land down into the world so he could free us and bring us back to the promised land. It's a beautiful picture of salvation in heaven that God left his throne, he left heaven, and he came down into a corrupt world, and he saved the world so we can go back into heaven. That was not an accident that Jesus as a child went to Egypt. It's a picture of salvation. And then we have the third interesting fact about Egypt. It is now the largest Muslim nation in the world. It stands as a living example of the separation and hostility and conflict that has existed for generations 
between the descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs, and the descendants of Isaac, the Jews. And it goes all the way back. Everything we've seen this week, every hostility toward Israel, everything is all back to Genesis. When Abraham said, God's not working fast enough. I don't know if he's going to fill the promise. I don't know if Sarah's going to have a child. She's awfully old. And Sarah says, go to Hagar. And Abraham has a child with Hagar, and that becomes Ishmael, the father of the Arab nation. And then God says, uh-uh, my plan was for you to have a son with your wife. And if you would trust in me, you would know that. And Isaac is born and becomes the father of the Jewish nation. And it says from day one, there's conflict between the two. Now that means that Egypt is a key component and now a potentially dangerous player toward Israel. But notice what God says. I'm almost done. You're so attentive today. Notice verse 3. God says, I will confound their strategy and I will rule over them. Look over at verse 16. God says, in that day the Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread because of the wavering, waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he's going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it's mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. God will prove his authority by the power of his presence. Look at verse 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppression, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They'll even worship with sacrifice and offering and make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they'll return to the Lord, and he'll respond to them and he will heal them. What a fascinating prophecy. And again, it brings us back to God's grace. I will make myself known to you, and you will worship me. That's hard to fathom for a country that's 99% Muslim. But God says, you will recognize me as God, and I have plans for you. And even though you reject me now, I'm loving and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. And I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I'm going to heal you. That's what he does. We're done in Isaiah 6. Isaiah's standing there and he's saying, Oh, I can't be here. And the angel comes. Interesting, he doesn't grab with his hands. He uses tongs. He grabs a coal out of the fire of the altar of incense with tongs. Listen now, don't be distracted. And he touches it to Isaiah's lips. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Even in the holiness of God, even in the complete inadequacy and unworthiness that we are, how many know that God still wants to forgive. If he can take Egypt and heal it and draw it back to himself, he can take your life and my life and he can cleanse us and purify us 
And if that doesn't humble us more and make us feel more unworthy, I don't know what will. We should want to fall on our face and say to God, Lord, I am so grateful that you have freed me from. Uh, Listen, let me ask you this morning, are, are you overwhelmed by God's mercy? Are you overwhelmed, I mean every day, every moment, by the presence and the power and the mercy of God? Do you have that right perspective of who you're really talking to? Or in some way, listen now, have we somehow lost that fear of the Lord and that sense of gratitude for what the Lord has done for us? Sin will do that, self-sufficiency will do that, but it also comes from not spending time in the presence of the Lord. You can always tell you're not in the presence of the Lord enough when you feel weak and lacking in encouragement and lacking in comfort. Because David says, in his presence is the fullness of what? Tell me. Joy. When we're in his presence, we're humbled, we're broken, we're overwhelmed, we're, we're completely unworthy. But in his presence, God lifts us up and says, you're my child. Like I hold my five-year-old's face when I just want to love him. And just, just like this, that's what God does to us. He says, you're my child. I've forgiven you. I've delivered you. I've exonerated you. Now, hear me. Respect me. Love me. Follow me. And I will fulfill you in ways you can't imagine. Let's pray together. Do you have that proper perspective this morning? You're aware of who the Lord really is and who you really are. I know day to day this is a struggle for me. We've been saved a long time and we're so used to mercy and so used to grace that that we just kind of take it for granted. But I pray this morning this will just be a wake-up call for us that God is holy and magnificent and wonderful and powerful. And in his presence, we should be overwhelmed with our own inadequacy. But in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Father, we thank you this morning for your inexplicable mercy. We thank you that you are the holy and righteous and pure God, and in you there is no fault. We never have to question that. We never have to wonder whether you are actually worthy of our praise and our adoration and our obedience and our trust. But Lord, it is so easy, not an excuse now, just honesty, it is so easy for us to become self-sufficient and distracted and to take you for granted. Lord, this week, fill us with a new sense of your power, a new sense of your holiness, a new sense of our need for you. Father, as we gather Wednesday night for prayer, may you just fill that place, and may we just be so aware of how unworthy we are, and yet how you declare us to be worthy by your grace. Lord, we love you this morning. We are so amazed by your grace.
May our lives now reflect that. Lord, for someone here this morning that is, that is struggling, that doesn't know you, that is turned aside from you, I pray they would turn back today. They would yield their heart to you and start to walk in the holiness that you will provide. And Lord, for those of us that know you and love you, renew in us a right spirit. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. The day we yielded our life to you and the tears flowed and we knew that we were changed. Lord, restore that to us today so that we may love you with all our heart and with all our soul and our mind and our strength. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.